to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, on this second Sunday of Advent, we hear a shocking claim and meet a no less shocking figure, both of which can very easily escape our notice because of how commonplace they have become for us. Similarly, last Sunday, on the first Sunday of Advent, we discussed the difficulty of entering into the Advent season properly in our own time and place. The hustle and bustle of this time of year spur us on to decorate, shop, cook, and party, all of which can serve as so much noise and distract us from the true purpose of this holy season in the life of the church. As emphasized last weekend, the season of Advent is a season of repentance. It is a season of preparation for encountering our Savior, the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, both at His birth and at His second coming. Preparation for encountering the living God, whether anamnetically, through the liturgical seasons, or at the end of time, calls for our cleansing, our purification, and thus, for a special season of penance. I want to lean on this topic a bit more today for two reasons. First and foremost, because it is in keeping with our scripture readings for today, as we shall see. However, in addition, I think it's important to emphasize this point as I have noticed that many, including clergy, want to shy away from this dimension of the Advent season. I find the latter curious mostly because the fact that Advent is a penitential season, analogous to the season of Lent, is so obvious. As mentioned last weekend, the clearest example of this is the liturgical color of the season, purple, which is also used for Lent, and is the color of the stole worn by a priest during the Sacrament of Reconciliation. I have heard this explained away in a couple of ways by those who want to shy away from the penitential nature of this season. I have heard some sort of shrug it off, almost as a mere coincidence, while others say that purple is the color of the season of Advent because we are preparing for the arrival of a king, and purple is associated with royalty. I find both explanations unconvincing. First off, you can't tell me that out of all the colors God used to paint his creation with, the church decided to use one twice for no reason. And why would there be a stronger connection with the divine royalty of Jesus during this time of year than just prior to Easter, when we are preparing to celebrate our crucified king's victory over the enemies of sin and death? But there are deeper and more robust reasons for asserting that Advent is indeed a penitential season. For example, during the season of Advent, as during the season of Lent, we do not sing the Gloria during Mass. True, we do not go so far as to refrain from singing Alleluia. Nevertheless, the absence of the Gloria is a sign that we are not to be as exultant as at other times of the year. In addition, next Sunday we will celebrate Gaudete Sunday, which finds its counterpart in the season of Lent's Laetare Sunday, both of which call for the use of the rose liturgical color. The celebrations of Gaudete and Laetare Sundays are indications that while we are in a penitential season, a darker season, if you will, 
The light is beginning to break on the horizon, and thus the church calls us to rejoice even amidst our ascetic struggles. Moreover, the prayers in the life of the church during this time of year explicitly speak of penitential actions during this season. For example, in morning prayer of the Liturgy of the Hours for Tuesday of the first week of Advent, in the intercessions we pray, Lord, grant that our works of penance may please you, and that we may be ready for your kingdom, which is so near. And in the prayer after communion on the third Sunday of Advent, we pray, We implore your mercy, Lord, that this divine sustenance may cleanse us of our faults and prepare us for the coming feasts, through Christ our Lord. Finally, as was the case last weekend, as is the case this weekend, and as will be the case next weekend, our readings speak explicitly of the need for repentance. With all of these clear indicators, the question becomes, why do some feel the need to sidestep or shirk the penitential nature of this season? Is such in keeping with the life of the church? Or is it simply another indicator that the retail and entertainment industry's holiday season has come to influence the way we live this holy season? After all, one can assert that Advent is a penitential season analogous to Lent without going so far as to say that the intensity of its penitential nature is equal to that of Lent. It seems to me that the reason for avoiding the penitential nature of Advent is connected to the problem we have with the doctrine of sin and related teachings of the church. Both are grossly misunderstood. Neither the doctrine of sin nor the demand for repentance are teachings which condemn the human creature. Quite the contrary. I was once a teaching assistant for a theology professor who told students each semester that he would not trust a religion that didn't have a penitential aspect to it. Why? Because that religion would offer no solutions to the problems that we so obviously face as a human family that stem from our tendencies to do all sorts of evil, great and small. There is clearly something wrong with us. But this is not to say that we are evil or totally depraved. Rather, to say that there is something wrong with us is to say that we were created good, and thus to be better, more, than we currently are, both as individuals and as a human family. The teachings surrounding sin and the call to repentance are thus liberating doctrines for the human family. It is like receiving a diagnosis from a doctor. Until you receive a diagnosis, there is no way to be treated and brought back to health, at least not well. The doctrine of sin is analogous to the diagnosis of our ailment, and the need for repentance is part of our course of treatment. It is thus part and parcel of the proclamation of the gospel. In fact, one could go so far as to say, the proclamation of the gospel remains completely unintelligible apart from these teachings. As the late great Joseph Ratzinger, citing a colleague, writes in his book, In the Beginning, we speak a great deal, and like to speak, about evangelization and the good news in such a way as to make Christianity attractive to people. But hardly anyone dares, nowadays, to proclaim the prophetic message, Repent. Hardly anyone dares to make to our age this elementary evangelical appeal with which the Lord wants to induce us to acknowledge our sinfulness, to do penance, and to become other than what we are. Our confrere added that Christian preaching today sounded to him like the recording of a symphony that was missing the initial bars of music so that the whole symphony was incomplete and its development incomprehensible. With this he touched a weak point of our present day spiritual situation. 
Mark the Evangelist would completely agree with this sentiment, as he makes clear in the opening verses of his gospel, which we hear proclaimed today. Mark opens his gospel with the words, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. To our postmodern ears, this verse sounds very pedestrian, while in fact it is a radical and indeed revolutionary message. We can take this in a couple of steps. For starters, the Greek word translated as gospel is evangelio, which means good news. So, Mark has good news to tell us about Jesus Christ, which does not surprise us at all, as people often use the phrase good news as a synonym for the gospel, even in our own time and place. The problem is that quite often when we hear the words good news with reference to the gospel, our postmodern sensibilities tend to make a connection to something along the lines of the good news is that God loves us and Jesus shows us that. True, but it completely takes the bite and radicality out of what Mark is saying to us here. Mark does not use the word evangelio on accident. Rather, he is drawing from both Greco-Roman and Jewish uses of the term in order to make a radical and revolutionary statement with it. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, the word evangelio was used to refer to the proclamation of a victory, especially a victory in battle. A messenger would be sent ahead of the general of an army, or ahead of the emperor, to proclaim the good news of victory. By using this term then, Mark is sticking it to the powers that be. He is saying, I have good news that far surpasses anything you could ever imagine. Not news of some military victory, whose ramifications will soon be irrelevant on the landscape of history, and whose memory will soon fade together with its leaders. I proclaim to you good news of the victory of the definitive and true King, the Divine King, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And what exactly is the victory being proclaimed? Here the Jewish use of the term comes into play. In the Jewish tradition, the phrase good news had come to be associated with liberation from captivity. Good examples of this are found in the book of the prophet Isaiah, one of which is included in our first reading for today. In chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, the prophet speaks on God's behalf, saying, Comfort, give comfort to my people, says your God. Speak to the heart of Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her service has ended, that her guilt is expiated. Then, in verses 9 and 10, the prophet says, Go up onto a high mountain, Zion, herald of good news. Cry out at the top of your voice, Jerusalem, herald of good news. Cry out, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Here comes with power the Lord God, who rules by his strong arm. Here is his reward with him his recompense before him. What is the good news? God is setting his people free from captivity and gathering them together alongside him and under his watchful care. In verse 11, the prophet continues, Like a shepherd feeds his flock, in his arms he gathers the lambs, carrying them in his bosom, leading the ewes with care. By using the term evangelio, good news, Mark then is saying to us that he has a message of liberation for us, that has been won through the victory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Just what the victory of the Son of God is will be revealed by Mark over the course of his gospel and ultimately culminate in the paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. However, Mark does not wait long to tell us what the Son of God has won victory over. He does so by moving back in time, as it were, and introducing the forerunner, the herald of the victorious king. 
In verses 2 and 3, Mark again draws from our first reading for today from Isaiah, writing, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. In the following verse, 4, Mark reveals the identity of the messenger, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a saint who doesn't get nearly as much attention today as he used to. We will be seeing him again next Sunday and we'll have more to say about him and explore his message in more detail then. For today, I want to focus on his character and the basic thrust of his message. Like all of the saints, John the Baptist tends to get domesticated by us. Take a look at how he's depicted in most works of art and you'll often find a frail, lightly clad, gentle, and non-confrontational figure. Lightly clad and frail he may have been, but John was about the last thing from non-confrontational. One would not go far wrong in saying, as Peter does in the series The Chosen, John was creepy. John the Baptist was outspoken and downright strange. In verse 6 of chapter 1, Mark describes the Lord's messenger in this way. John was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He fed on locusts and wild honey. I think when we hear this description, we can make one of two mistakes. First, we might say, well, things were really different in that time and place. That must not have been that strange. Or second and worse, we might shrug it off as a bit of fiction. After all, no one would live in the wilderness, a place of extreme weather conditions, and live in very little clothing and on very little food. But this is exactly what John did. And make no mistake, it was as strange and shocking then as it is today. The question we must ask ourselves is, why was John so weird? Why did he live in this way? To put it very simply, John's life was his message. For starters, he lived in the wilderness. Why? For a few reasons. First, by doing so, John has decidedly become one who lives apart and different from the rest of society. And when noticed, as it was... People will question why he lives this way, because it is so weird. And when looking for an answer as to why John lived this way, people received the answer that his life was a prophetic sign and a proclamation that something is terribly wrong and must be set right. And that something wrong is our relationship with God. The prophetic nature of John's life is confirmed by his attire. It's self a sign of the pivotal role he plays in salvation history. And another tip-off concerning the nature of the good news Mark is proclaiming to us. For there was another great prophet in Israel's tradition who dressed the same way. In chapter 1 verse 8 of the second book of Kings, we are told that the prophet Elijah wore a hairy garment with a leather belt around his waist. With this description then, Mark identifies John as the last of the Old Testament prophets. For it was believed that the great prophet Elijah would return just prior to the advent of the Lord's Messiah. Mark thus points to John as a bridge figure of sorts, still calling Israel to repentance and promising salvation as all the great prophets had, but now pointing to an unexpected solution, to one mightier than he, indeed all, who will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. For John points, as all the saints point, in one direction and one direction alone, to Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. John's life thus also symbolizes the life of Israel. 
Just as Israel lived in the wilderness after being freed from captivity in Egypt for 40 years, facing various challenges when it came to living their covenantal relationship with God, so too John lived in the wilderness as an ascetic, just as Jesus would for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry, and just as many others would centuries later in an effort to combat sin and thereby grow closer to God, St. Anthony of Egypt perhaps the most famous among them. The connection between John's life and the life of the people of Israel is made by the food, we are told, that John eats. John, we are told, fed on wild honey. The promised land to which Israel journeyed through the wilderness, of course, was said to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Thus, John, in some sense, is a figure who lives in the promised land, if only on the outskirts, we might say. What I mean is, apart from Mary, Joseph, and Elizabeth, John is perhaps the first person to know that salvation and our relationship with God will only be repaired by way of the Lamb of God, as he tells us in John's Gospel, and thereby has entered into relationship with God through that very same Lamb in a proleptic manner by way of faith. In this sense, John's life prophetically stretches forward, but in another, it prophetically stretches backward. This is also signified by John's attire. For just as John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt, so too God had provided Adam and Eve with garments of skin and sent them out into the now fallen and broken world with nothing else except his promise that one day a descendant of theirs would crush the enemy. By prophetically stretching back to the beginning and forward toward the Messiah and living in attire provided by God, John's life thus symbolically proclaims that now is the acceptable time, the time chosen by God to accomplish his work of salvation. John's life thus symbolically spans salvation history, bridging the time from the fall to definitive salvation in the Son of God. For our part, John calls us to repent by acknowledging our sins. In this way, we prepare, and even more than this, allow God's work of salvation to begin in us, even before it is definitively accomplished at the end of the age. My friends, on this second Sunday of Advent, we hear Mark's initial proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the definitive victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, over sin and death, and learn a twofold lesson from the Baptist as to how to respond to that good news. First, repent. Acknowledge that all is not well, and we are not as we should be, as we have been created to be, but have rather fallen short by sin. Second, by his example, John calls us to live the truth courageously and unapologetically in word and deed. Don't be afraid to be weird. Live the gospel. Live the life of the body of Christ, the church, which during this season of Advent calls us to be weird calls us to works of penance rather than to parties, to a season of ascetic denial rather than gluttonous consumption. If we begin to live in this way, we will have taken one step closer to living lives that are truly meaningful, for, as John's, they will have become prophetic in nature. For, when people see that you don't live this time of the year just like everyone else, it will be weird to them, and they will wonder why which will open the door for you to testify in both word and deed that the reason you so live is because it is the advent of the Savior and we have time for nothing else than to prepare to welcome him 
with clean hearts. No one ever gave their life for a party, and no one finds lasting meaning in any material item. As human creatures, we only have something truly worth living for when we are given something worth dying for. And the Baptist life stands as a testimony that the truth of the gospel is indeed something worth dying for. For it is the only thing that is truly life-giving. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.